Good evening again. If you could please open your Bibles to 2 Samuel. We're going to be finishing up chapter 13 and getting into chapter 14 this evening. This is a, uh, these two chapters, as we've been going through the life of David, uh, have been very difficult. You know, it's hard to see somebody like David, or anybody for that matter, to go through what he has gone through, and, and much of it he brought on himself. They were the, the consequences of his sin. And the Bible makes it very clear that our sin will find us out. Our sin will find us out. And left unchecked... Um, God will bring it to pass. God will make sure that, um, hey, Mark, can we just turn that, um, just get a little bit of a, maybe just turn it down the gain just a slight bit. Thank you. And, um, and just to see what he has gone through and what he's going to go through yet is, is very difficult. These are difficult passages. And what it does is it forces us to see these things, and, and, and to know that they happen in, in this man's life. And can I tell you, in spite of all of King David's mistakes, his, his adultery, his murder, his deceit, uh, in spite of all those things, what really differentiates David from, say, a character like Saul is the fact that David repented. You know, if you make a mistake, if you sin and you you really mess up, you know, the Bible is true. What, what the, the promise, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you believe that, and, and, and if we do repent truly, we can go on and, and walk with the Lord and be and walk in newness of life. And do you know that even the guilt of those things, we can lay at the feet of Jesus? Because to the extent that I really believe that he died for my sin, is the extent to which I can forget. I can, and, and I, I mean, we can't forget things, but if I can lay them at his feet and, and believe that he has forgiven me based on his blood, on his merit, not my own, my life becomes so much more fruitful because I'm not constantly being bludgeoned over my head by my own feelings telling me, well, you're not worthy, you're not good enough. Are those things true? Of course. <laughs> I'm not worthy. I don't... Ex- uh, um, expect these things, nor do I deserve them. But to know that God has forgiven me and that he wishes for me to walk on from that moment, to know that I've been forgiven and then to no longer do it. But if we, can, if we do it again, don't let the enemy or even your own self condemn you. You do what the Bible says, confess it and be clean of it, and you pray to the Holy Spirit of God that he will work that out in your life that you will turn away from that. The gift of repentance is such a sweet and wonderful gift, and it's a gift that I pray that we all ask for, that we would be willing to repent often, (laughs) and that it would be a lasting repentance, not just something I say, Lord, I did it again, please forgive me. And does he forgive you? Yes. But you know what? Uh, My question to you and myself and to anybody who is an earshot of this is, do I really mean that? Or is, is the forgiveness of God just a rabbit's foot that I rub and... I uh, you know, expect forgiveness, and then I, I don't have any intention on changing. That's a very dangerous place. That's abusing grace. That's not understanding grace. 
Most people think that grace is, you know, licensed to continue in their sin and that, oh, God's a God of grace. He'll just forgive me. Yes, he will forgive you, but he takes your sin very seriously, and so should you. So should I. I should never be footloose and fancy free with sin. And I'm not saying David was, because he wasn't. And that is the difference. David, when he sinned, he cracked like an egg and he repented, and it was a done deal. And that's why the Bible could say that he was a man after God's own heart. And there's a difference, because a man like Saul never sought God in, in, in earnest, and his life ended miserably. He never really sought the Lord. He was never obedient. He was always doing things his own way, and finally it got the best of him. But David was not of that ilk. <laughs> David was very different. And are you different than that? Do you take your sin lightly? Or do you, like David, say, Lord, I messed up on this really bad, and I am done with this sin? I pray that we all get to that place. If we, you know, if we haven't gotten there, hopefully we will get there. But remember, God is a God of grace, and he's a God of love. But don't abuse that. As a Christian, let's never abuse that grace. And so we looked at the beginning of um, 2 Samuel chapter 13, and it was a very difficult passage because we learned of a, an event that occurred in the life of Amnon. Amnon, if you remember, was David's firstborn son when David first began to rule over Judah and Hebron. And as a result of being the firstborn, you know, he had certain rights and he was looked up to. And he also had a other brothers. We know that David had six sons from six different women, different wives that he had. And Amnon and Absalom were from two different mothers, the same father, David, but with two different mothers. And Absalom had a very beautiful young sister. Her name was Tamar. And you recall what happened that Amnon was so sick in lust, the Bible says in love, but the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for love is ahab. And Hebrew, unfortunately, doesn't have all the facets of like the Greek language, per se, where they translate love in English, but in the Greek it can, be, it can mean five or six different Greek words, depending on the context of love. I love my car, but I also love my wife. There's a big difference, and I love God, right? And so there's a, you know in context, there's a difference. The Greek spells that out, but in Hebrew... Only the context of the passage can tell you. But we know that Amnon was not really in love with his sister because she was very beautiful to look on. He was in lust with her. And it says that he was so distressed over her that he became ill. Now this, to me, is a very dangerous place for any young man or any woman, but more often we hear it in young men. Just being so filled with lust and not able to contain it, that they, they want a woman so bad that they're willing to do anything for her. That's called idolatry, by the way, right? They want her so bad, and she's so beautiful, he must have her. And I can, I can speak frankly, because we're all adults in this room. Wanted her so bad that he became ill. He began to get thin, actually. He began to lose weight because of his lust. And he began to share this with his cousin, Jonadab. Jonadab was the son of one of David's brothers. Shammah was one of David's brothers, and Shammah had a son named Jonadab. So here are these two cousins. Jonadab was a very crafty man. He hatched this plan. He says, 
Amnon, if you really want Tamar, your half-sister, here's what you do. Feign to be ill, go into your room, and ask the king, David, ask your father to tell me you're really ill and, and that you need Tamar to come and, and, and cook cakes in front of you, you know, um, biscuits, and, 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 and have her cook, you know, make them right in your presence, and then have her feed you, and then, you know, go from there. And so Jonadab hatches this evil plot, plants this evil idea in his cousin's mind, and of course his cousin's like, that sounds like a great idea. And so that's exactly what he does. And so finally, he gets her into the room, and she's making the cakes. Finally, Jonah, or, uh, Amnon tells everybody, being the eldest son of King David, he had servants and attendants. He told them to all leave. Red flag number one. Now he's alone with this young girl. Probably 17, 16, 17, 18 years old. And then he goes into the bedroom, and he has her come into the bedroom. And then she makes the cakes. And I love what this young lady, the discernment, and the, and the Bible mentions this little thing, and it's, it's so telling. I believe she began to pick up on something because she takes the pan, and she cooks the cakes in them, and she hands them out to Amnon for him to take and eat. But he wouldn't eat because he wanted to be hand-fed by her. So finally, she acquiesces. She gets close, and he basically tells her that he wants to lie with her. She refuses, naturally, because it's, it, it was against the law, even in Hebrew law, for a, a, a brother and a sister to have intimate relations. They weren't married. She wasn't a spouse to anybody. She wasn't engaged or anything like that, but she was the king's daughter, half-daughter. And Amnon, in spite of her pushback on Amnon, he forces her and lies with her. And then to make matters worse, the love that the Bible says that he had for her goes out the window. Now he hates her. Does that sound like familiar today? Does that sound like uh, those soap operas that maybe you've sat and watched and the, you know, as the stomach churns? No, as the world turns. As the, the blinding light. Oh, no, the guiding light. You know, you, these, these soap operas. And it's all about you know, lust and intrigue and murder. And it's all here in these two chapters. But this is real stuff. And why is it here anyway? Is it to shame David? No, the Bible says that these things are written for our admonition, for our teaching, for our learning. And some of them are downright uncomfortable to read and to study and to look at. But if we're honest, we see this all around. And even some of you in this room have had perhaps an issue in your life with somebody close in your family, a physical interaction that you would love to forget. But know that God is a God of forgiveness, even if, especially if it's not your fault. And even if it is your fault, God forgives. But have you confessed? Are you willing to do that? And to think, and then to make matters worse, he kicks her out of his house and she runs, and she's wearing this multicolored robe, a very colorful robe, which the king's daughters would wear. And she tears her robe. She's crying. She's got, she puts ashes on her head. She's running out into the street. Everybody's looking at her. And what did, by Amnon kicking her out, what this makes it look like, it makes it look like she is the one who is the instigator. That Amnon was somehow 
you know, discovered her, and maybe she came on to him, and he decided, hey, I'm not about that. <laughs> wink, wink, right? I'm not, I'm not like that. And then he kicks her out, and that's what it looks like, because normally they would stay until the, the cover of darkness, and then she would leave, but Amnon kicks her out, making her to look like the instigator in this whole thing, ruins her reputation Does that sound familiar? Why is it always the young ladies? Even when I was in high, in high school and middle school, it was always the young ladies who had, you know, if they had a brush with some testosterone-laden teenage boy, <laughs> it was always the girl who had the problem, who got the reputation, and the young man looked like some stallion that all the boys looked up to, but it was always the young ladies who had to bear the burden of their reputation afterwards. Isn't that horrible? Nothing has really changed. And I love that about the Bible, that it doesn't candy coat these things. And can I tell you that David, David, in spite of all his faults, is in glory. He's in heaven right now. And the Bible tells us in Ezekiel chapter 34 that God, when, when the Lord... Um, at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ, which is still yet future to us, obviously, that God is going to resurrect David, and he is going to serve in Jerusalem in a very official capacity in spite of those sins. So how do you feel tonight? You know, most of us have never committed murder, at least not in the physical. Most of us have never committed adultery, perhaps, but maybe we have with our eyes, or maybe we have physically. And yet, God can forgive. Have you asked him for forgiveness? Are you one with Christ? Are you trying to, or are you trying to work it out yourself and just forget about the past? Let me suggest to you to, to get right with the Lord tonight. If there's anything of your past that you have not disclosed to him, disclose it. Disclose it. You'll feel wonderfully better if you do. And so... She, uh, Amnon kicks her out of his house. Tamar's destroyed. And in verse 21 of chapter 13, it says something really telling. It says, but when David heard of all these things, when David heard of his son, his firstborn son, okay, that's a big deal, of what he did, notice what happened. He heard all these things and he was very angry. That's it. He was very angry. There's no record of him. In fact, there is no record of David doing what he should have done by the law. And even as a father, he just kind of, it says he's angry, but he does absolutely nothing. And probably because David himself, having just come off his major sin issue and still very wounded about that, he doesn't find it within his own heart to bring judgment upon his own son who's guilty of nearly the same thing. David didn't rape Bathsheba, but he took her unlawfully, just like Amnon took Tamar unlawfully. And God spared David's life, even though he deserved death by the law. And I wonder what would happen, how this whole story that we're going to read, it's not a story, this whole event, how it would have changed if David had just as a father, if he just stood up and said, you know what, son, 
I know I've messed up, and everybody knows I've messed up. My sin is before everyone, but here's the day, here's the deal. You know what you did was wrong, and we have to deal with this. Now, maybe he would have been spared his life, even though the law demanded death. Maybe he would have been spared, but there was no mention of it. It was almost like just pushing under the rug. Does that sound familiar? It does. There's a lot of that happening. Leviticus tells us this concerning Amnon, concerning his rape of Tamar. It says, the nakedness, Leviticus 18.11, it says, the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter begotten by your father, she is your sister, you shall not uncover her nakedness. And it even goes further in the 29th verse of that same chapter in Leviticus. It says, for whoever commits any of these abominations, the person who commits them shall be cut off, literally be put to death from among their people. So this was a serious, serious breach. And it is today. And even though this chapter is really concerning Amnon and Tamar and Absalom, we have to remember the prophecy that God had given to Nathan, David's prophet, to give to David. And let me read it to you. It's just a page probably to your left. It's in chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. Notice what God told Nathan to tell David. This is what God was saying to David. He says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's wives and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have also given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Amnon. And notice, now therefore, here's the consequence of the sin. The Bible says that there is always a consequence. For the wages of sin is what? It's death. The wages of sin is death. Maybe not a physical death, sometimes it is but a death to relationships, a death to a marriage, a death to a friendship, a death of guilt inside that you can't even live with yourself anymore because you've done something. Notice, here's the consequence. Now, therefore, God says to David, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the son. And so there's the prophecy that God gives. And the painful thing that we're going to see as we begin here in the 22nd, 23rd verse of chapter 13, onward for several chapters, is we're going to be seeing that prophecy being meted out. It's going to be carried out by God, and he's going to see fit that David, although forgiven, he's forgiven and he knows it, but there's consequences. And boy, are they painful. Are you going through consequences because of something you've done in your past? Are you currently going through something, a consequence from something in your past? God may forgive you, and he can, and hopefully he has. But he doesn't allow us to just skate by and act like nothing ever happened. And there's something about that that 
I think is really important because the pain that we go through as a result of sin, as a result of bad choices, there's a reaping of that. And doesn't that teach us? Isn't that the chastening hand of the Lord? Nobody likes to talk about that, but God does. He chastens those whom he loves. And why does he do it? Just because he's a mean God? No, because I don't know about you, but I don't learn when I'm going through, when everything is just fine. I, I don't learn when things are going fine and there's no consequences. I learn, I respond really well to pain. Maybe you're different than me. Sometimes I respond and I'm obedient to God and I don't experience pain because I'm obedient to him. And other times, I, I, for some silly reason, I have to go through the school of hard knocks. Hard knocks university. HKU. I go through the hard knocks because I don't listen. So we're going to see that. And one thing I think you will see too is I, I would encourage you to read these chapters. We're going to be cruising along here, especially when we get into chapter 14. But I want you to think as you read this, as we read this together and go through this, and as you read it privately, Put yourself into the shoes of these different characters and really think about the dynamic of the family. Think about the position that Amnon was in. Think about the position that Tamar was in. Picture in your mind these things. Put them in their proper understanding of where they are in the family and who's the firstborn, who's not, who's a half-brother. And pretty soon you realize, oh my goodness, the depth of, of, of this event is so rich, and I don't mean rich in the sense of good, but I mean rich in the sense of complicated. It's a very complicated thing. Put yourself, read it thinking of yourself as David after having sinned and murdered and then having to see your son do this and then doing nothing about it. Put yourself in the, in the sandals of Tamar, the young girl who's you know, hoping to marry well, and then she's abused by her older brother, her half-brother, and now she, she's barren and for the rest of her life, the Bible tells us. She's living with Absalom and she's shamed. How does that, how, can you imagine putting yourself in her position? And think of Absalom. Amnon was the heir to the throne. He was the heir apparent. And now Absalom, the third from the throne, now he's got a really good motive because David did nothing, he's got a really great motive now to put his older brother to death. And not only would it avenge her rape, but it would also put him on the throne should David pass away. You see the motive? He's got great motive now. And he uses it, but he, he's patient. He's a good politician. He's a very smart man, a very cunning man, an opportunist. So let's look at verse 23. So after all of this, after David did nothing but was angry, and, and Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, now it finally says, and it came to pass after two full years, two years, remember that, that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and so Absalom invited all the king's 
sons. Again, Absalom was patient. It's been two years. Think about what's happened in two years. He's just stewing inside, planning, waiting, seeing maybe what his dad is going to do. And when Absalom sees, you know, dad, you, you, you've done nothing for two years. He's probably not going to do anything. And now he's thinking to himself, I'm going to get my revenge. I'm going to get my revenge. And we'll see here shortly that he does. He's patient, he's cunning, he's waiting for the right moment. He's an opportunist. And Baal Hazor, this location, is about four and a half miles northeast of Bethel or about seven miles north of Jerusalem. Now David's kingdom's in Jerusalem, so now he's, Absalom is, is going to have this sheep-shearing event, this feast, about seven miles north of Jerusalem. Quite a bit of ways when you're walking And he invites David. And then Absalom, verse 24, came to the king and he said, Kindly note, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. Notice the, that Absalom invited King David as well. And I think this is very interesting because perhaps Absalom invited the king along with the king's servants, hoping to hide his true motive, knowing very well that David would more than likely not be able to go. But he says, why don't you come, Dad? You're the king. Why don't you come and enjoy this feast? And Absalom in his heart probably knew his dad was preoccupied with other things. And of course, David says, no, my son, you, you go. And then Absalom said, if not, if you don't go, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And at this moment, I can't help but wonder if there is a check in David's heart. It's been two years you wanted me to go with you with your brothers, but now you're asking me just to have Amnon go in my stead? True, he is my firstborn son, but he's also the firstborn son who raped your sister and nothing has happened. I wonder if the wheels started to spin and David just had this little check in his heart. But do you understand, had Absalom not invited David as well, David might have been justified in his suspicion. But to lower that suspicion, he invites his father as well. And finally, David says, nope, I'm not going to go. So verse 27, but Absalom urged him. And so ultimately, David let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. And again, another check. And again, remember, Absalom had two motives in getting Amnon to this sheep-shearing event seven miles away from the king's palace. Number one, because of the rape. And number two, it would put him on the throne should he exact vengeance upon his older brother. So instead of letting just Amnon go, David had all the sons go. And perhaps David did this to make Absalom accountable. Because if all of David's sons are there, Amnon's not, or Absalom's not going to be able to get away with much, or at least David might think. This And so verse 28, it says, Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him, do not be afraid, have not I commanded you, be courageous and valiant. This seems a little odd to us, but you have to understand that the king's son, the firstborn son, had servants, and it's not uncommon for servants of a king or even a king's son to just do what they're told, because ultimately... It's not their problem. It's going to come back on Absalom. 
They're just being obedient, carrying out what he, what he said for them to do. And that's just the way it was. They didn't ask questions. They'd make great military men because, you know, if a, if a general in the army says, I want you to plow through that wall and kill the enemy on the other side, they're not going to ask questions. They have orders. They're just going to do it. They're not going to say, but who is the enemy and what does he look like? Just trust me, break through the wall and kill who's on the other side. That, that's your objective today. That's all you got to do. And a good soldier will do what he's told. And he won't ask a lot of questions. And so were some of these servants. And so because David did nothing for two years, Absalom plans to kill his brother out of vengeance and thus perhaps hopes that he will be seen as justified and then making himself and maybe even securing the throne for himself because public opinion is watching. Public opinion is growing. Wow, he's a very handsome man. We're going to find that Absalom was a very handsome man. He had the golden, I mean, he's probably blonde. I mean, he probably had these long flowing, he, when I hear the description of him later on, he sounds like that guy Fabio. Does anybody remember that? Just this guy with the flowing locks, and he's just like a peacock, you know. He just flamboyant and believes that he's, you know, just narcissist, you know. But he was, he was a handsome fellow. By... Absalom exacting punishment instead of his father David. Perhaps David would feel that perhaps his son now did deserve the throne. Again, think of how David is feeling. He knows he should have done something, but he did nothing. And now his oldest or his third eldest son now is going to take the life of his firstborn son. And maybe David's thinking, you know what? I should have done, I, I should have done something. I should have let due process go through, you know, to happen so that there would be some punishment. Whether he was, his life was spared or whether we had to put him in jail for a season or put him under some kind of, you know, house arrest, something, but nothing. David did nothing. And perhaps David... Perhaps this might have made David feel even worse because he did nothing concerning Amnon. And certainly guilty that he didn't do anything concerning Amnon's punishment. He did nothing. And dads and moms, can I exhort you tonight to be careful about how you deal with your sons and your daughters? You're doing them a favor by holding them to a, a tighter standard. But what I see in our country today, even in the church, is that there's so much lax that our kids, they, they grow up and they've got all these, all the much, much room, much room to just fall into areas of sin. And if we're really, if we're really a good parent, we need to tighten the reins. We need to be aware of what they're listening to what they're watching. Are you in tune with that? Are, do you even care? I've seen kids in the church as young as, you know, eight, nine years old walking around with an iPhone. And I see this in society. Wide open. The Internet's wide open for them. There are controls. I mean, there, there are things that a good parent ought to do. But doesn't sin, doesn't it tie us up in knots and it makes it harder and harder to do the right thing, to get out of the mess that you're in? Because once we sin, sin begets sin and 
If we don't confess it immediately, we have to make up a story or we have to do something to cover that up. And it's not long before that becomes known. Then we got to do something else. And do you see, you're just, all you're doing is just taking the shovel. You might as well just walk around with a shovel because you're just digging yourself even deeper, digging yourself even deeper, and you're getting lower in the pit. Pretty soon, it's just going to cover you. And the devil loves to do that. It's better to confess it immediately and take the shame. Whatever you've got to do, confess it and make things right and turn away from that thing, whatever it is. Had this happened in the very beginning, this whole event would have been so different. But see, God knows the end from the beginning. Doesn't the Bible say that he's Alpha, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending? Doesn't Psalm 139 tell us that God knows our thoughts before we think? Doesn't it say in that same psalm that he knows what we're going to speak before we even speak it? Doesn't it say that before we were in the phone, before we were formed in the womb, God knew us? Didn't he tell Jeremiah that? See, God knows all things. He doesn't intervene in the sense to make you do anything. He just he, he allows us that free will. But God help us with that free will. May we follow him in righteousness and be willing to confess things and to do the right things and not let the sin continue to wrap us up in a knot to where we can't even breathe anymore. It's like a boa constrictor. Have you ever seen a boa constrictor take a... I've seen a boa constrictor um, go after an alligator in the Everglades, and you know what it does? Yes, a boa con- or, a, or a python. It'll wrap itself... It'll, there'll, there'll be a battle, and then the thing will wrap itself around the, the alligator, and the alligator will take a breath, and then as soon as the air goes out in the lungs, the, the, the python will constrict it. Now he can't breathe. And he'll continue doing that and doing that until the thing suffocates. And that's what sin does to us. It suffocates us. Aren't you glad you came tonight? Isn't this wonderful? I know it is hard. But here it is in front of us. So verse 29, So the servants of Absalom, they did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. And then all the king's son arose, and each one of them got on his mule and fled. Now remember, these other sons of David, they were younger. They perhaps thought that they might be, maybe they thought they would be next. I mean, here's the oldest, uh, Absalom. He's the heir apparent now, now that, now that he's killed the firstborn. Is he going to kill us? And they're, maybe they're thinking to themselves, we better get out of here because we don't want to be complicit in this plot that Absalom had hatched against Amnon. I want to get out of here, wouldn't you? I don't want to have anything to do with this. Have you ever been in a situation like that where somebody does something and you're like, man, I've got to get out of here because I don't even want to be, I don't even want to be in the same crowd when the news class comes with the big cameras and they start asking questions. I just want to slide underneath the corner somewhere. What's that? Yes, Newsboys wrote a song about that, right? Guilty by association. I want to be guilty because I know him, because I know Christ. If I'm guilty because of that, hallelujah. Take me to jail. <laughs> Maybe one day I will be. Canada's not too far away and it's happening to them. How long will it be before they haul me away because I you know, share uh, difficult things, especially concerning... Um, homosexuality and, and other things. The Bible has a multitude of things it talks about. Homosexuality is not just the one. We talk about heterosexual fornication and how wrong that is too, but nobody wants to haul you away for that. Right? Anyway, I digress. So, 
It came to pass, verse 30, while they were on their way, the king's sons, they, they flee, they get out of there. And news came to David saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons. Wow, sounds like our mainstream media taking one event and just blowing it way out of proportion, full of lies. All the king's sons have dead and not one of them is left. And at this point, based on what God had told David, that prophecy that the sword would never depart from your house, He's probably thinking to himself, this is it. He hears the news and he's already absorbing it. He's already saying, okay, this is what God said. He's, he's doing it and it's just going to crush me again. I lost my firstborn son from Bathsheba because of my sin. Now I'm going to lose all my sons because of my sin. And I bet David was just going, oh God, I am guilty of all this. You have the right to take whatever you want. Take my life. I think at that point, David was just laying prostrate on the ground and just saying, Lord, do with me whatever you want to do. Crush me if you want to crush me. So the king arose, notice verse 31, and he tore his garments and he lay on the ground again, laying prostrate on the ground, just totally blown away, totally at the end of himself. And all of his servants stood by with their clothes torn. And remember the prophecy that God had spoken to him. The sword shall never depart from your house. So David is assuming. And then Jonadab, notice, remember, Jonadab was Amnon's cousin, or this is David's nephew. He comes, remember this young man who gave Amnon that evil, twisted plot to rape his you know, for Amnon to rape his sister. Jonadab, the son of Shimeah, or Shammah is his name, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. What a turncoat this man is. He gives the plot to Ammon, and now he's just ingratiating himself to the king. Let me tell you what really happened. Only Amnon is, uh, is dead. The rest of them, and David's probably going, oh, that's such good news. I'm glad that all my sons aren't dead. And this turncoat, Jonadab, slippery individual, an opportunist again. There's a lot of those in the Bible. Now therefore, verse 33, let not my lord the king take this thing to his heart to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. And notice in verse 34, then Absalom, he fled, and the young man who was weeping, or keeping watch, excuse me, lifted his eyes and looked, and there many people were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And so now the, the scene changes back to Jerusalem, and David sees that his sons are coming back. And Jonadab, verse 35, said to the king, Look, the, the, the king's sons are coming, as your servant said, so it is. And so it was, as soon as he had finished speaking, that the king's sons indeed came, and they lifted up their voice and they wept. And also the king and all of his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom, he fled, and he went to Telmai, the son of Ahihud, excuse me, king of Jeshur. And David mourned for his son every day. Every single day. Now, why did Absalom flee to Jeshur? Jeshur is, if you were to go from Jerusalem and go up about at least 70 miles, at least maybe, maybe a little more, to the northeast of the Sea of Galilee, that area up there is called Jeshur. 
And notice how clever Absalom was. Think of where it was that he killed Amnon. Seven miles away from where the king lived, he held this feast there. Why did he hold it there? I mean, I'm certain there was a reason, but it also gave him an advantage, didn't it? Because he knew that after he killed Amnon, he would have at least a day's day's, um, advantage to flee to Telmei, the king of, uh, of Jeshur. And why Jeshur? Because guess what? That's his grandfather. Remember, David married a woman, and her father was this very king. And so Tamar and Absalom, they both have their grandfather up in the northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee. So Absalom flees up there for refuge. And so Absalom fled. He went to Jeshur and was there, notice, three years. He was there three years. Perhaps, and and notice what it says in verse 39, And King David longed to go to Absalom, even though what he knew was wrong, and even though this was a heinous crime, David still had love for his firstborn son. I don't think we can quite understand that love that a man in this culture would have for his firstborn son. It was a very significant thing, your firstborn son, the very first of your strength, the very first the one who would inherit every, all that you have. Your line is continued through that firstborn son. There's a lot of hope. There's a lot of desire there. And so David is longing for Absalom. There's an old proverb that says, absent makes the heart grow fonder. Isn't that true sometimes? And perhaps David thought how he might have been responsible somehow for all of this had he dealt with this issue from the beginning correctly. Maybe things would have been different, but now his son has fled. And again, when we look back at 2 Samuel chapter 12, the prophecy, the sword shall not depart from your house, that begins to take shape. And it's not done yet. But there's also verses 11 and 12 that God spoke concerning David. And notice what he says. This is uh, chapter 12, verse 11. It says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And now we're going to see Absalom taking the reins, and now he's going to seek to overthrow his father. There's going to be a period where he is going to be, um, uh, he's going to be in exile in a sense, and he's going to come back. But he's going to take over his heart is going to take over, and he's going to seek to overthrow his father. And what did the Lord say? I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. We're going to see that meted out in chapters to come. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, and that would actually come to pass. For you did it secretly, but I will do this before all Israel, before the son. And what an awful thing to happen. So chapter 14, let's read it. It says, so Joab, remember Joab was the nephew of David. David, King David had a sister named Zeruiah. 
And she gave birth to three sons. Joab was one of them. And Joab now is the commander of David's army. And so Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa, which is um, south of Jerusalem, and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel and do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead and go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. So Joab now is going to encourage this woman, this wise woman, to engage in deceit. And I wonder how wise she was to listen to a man. (laughs) Of course, she's listening to Absalom, who's the heir apparent now. And so she's listening to him. And I find it interesting that the last story or the last parable that was spoken to David, and she's going to give to David, she's going to speak to him a parable that's going to draw David out. It's going to expose his hypocrisy. Do you remember that happening before? When Nathan came to David initially, after a year, a year after his relationship with Bathsheba, a year after Uriah's death, Nathan comes to him and he says, remember the, the parable about the lamb? And Nathan said, you're the man, David. You're the one who stole that you lamb, that one lamb, and you sacrificed it for your neighbor. And so David's going to hear another parable. And it's going to bring him conviction. I find it also interesting that the Lord brought this woman of Tekoa, this wise woman. And I think there's something really important for for us in this. And that if we don't deal with our own issues, our own sin, God can and often does bring somebody else into our life if we are unwilling to confess it. If we're unwilling to deal with it privately, God can and has and does expose things out for everyone to see. He would much rather deal with us privately and quietly because if your idea about God is just this angry old man in the the universe who just can't wait for you to mess up so he can judge you, then you don't understand the nature of God at all because that is not his heart. He weeps over when we sin. He weeps over those who sin. It is not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's not his will that any should die. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. That is who God is. That's what the Bible says who God is. And God is plenteous in mercy mercy and compassion. That is his character. But because he loves us, there is a time when he says, if you are not going to deal with this, I have to bring this out. It's like a festering wound. Why are you walking around like the walking wounded when all you've got to do is come to me and confess it? And be rid of it. Be done with it. Make retribution. Do whatever you've got to do. Ask for forgiveness. Get this thing out. That's how a wound heals, isn't it? Sometimes that wound, that pus and that boil that's growing on your ankle, it has to be lanced before it can get better. It has to be lanced. It has to be wounded so that it can begin to heal again. Are you willing to do that? Or are you just going to say, no, I'm going to take this to the grave. 
Well, good luck with that because you're going to die an old man and an old woman. You're going to be very angry and very disposed, deposed. Do you want to live like that? Do you want to live to the end of your days having that over your head? I don't. I want to have a clear record. In fact, I would encourage you before you go on your pillow tonight, before you lay your head down, make amends tonight. Before you lay your head on that pillow, you say, God, I have been secretly doing this or I have, I have did something in my past and I've never asked you to forgive me. Make it right tonight. Ask for the forgiveness and do whatever he wants you to do. He may not have you do anything, but he may say, you know what, I want you to go to that young lady that you hurt. He may say that. And you say, I'm sorry for the way I treated you. Maybe she works with you in your, in your workplace. Maybe back when you were a teenager, you did some inappropriate things and maybe you hurt her feelings. Maybe you broke her heart and she works right in your division. Would God have you go up to her someday and just say, you know what? I am so sorry for the way I took advantage of you. I was so wrong. Would you please forgive me? I was so wrong. You did nothing wrong. It was all me. Would you forgive me? And to have her look and say, you know what? I've been waiting for that all my life. And then to have her give her heart to Christ. You just never know what's going to happen. Do it. Tonight. Don't let another day go before you get things right. Because if you don't, your growth and your walk with God is going to be stunted. It's going to be walking around like with a peg leg. You're going to be stunted. Get it right tonight. Don't be like David. Don't be like Absalom. Notice, and when the woman of Tekoa, she spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and she prostrated herself and she says, help, O king. And So now she's involved with this deceit now. And then the king said to her, what troubles you? And she answered, indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maidservant had two sons, and here's the parable. She speaks to him. And I, I can imagine David's going, oh, here we go again. The last time I heard a parable, I got busted. And he's going to get busted again <laughs> because he did nothing. Notice, your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to part them, but the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant, and they said, deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed, and, he will and, and we will destroy the heir also, so they would extinguish my ember that is left, she said, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. And then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, my lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. And so the king said to her, Whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you any more. And then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son also. And notice what David said. Underline this. As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Notice the mercy, the clemency, 
And therefore the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak another word to the Lord my king. And he said, Say on. So the woman said, Why then have you schemed? So, <laughs> can you hear this? This is just like Nathan when he said, You're the man. And, and now he's going, Oh my gosh, not this again. What did I? And David is just waiting for it. He opened himself. He just stuck his foot in his own mouth. She says, why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty, and that the king does not bring his banished one home again. Yeah, you can tell me that you're going to you know, be lenient to my, my son who killed my other son, but you won't even bring your son home and deal with it. David, in a sense, what are you doing? Everyone around you is wanting to and understand that justice should be happening here, and, and, and you... You know, you've been forgiven much. Why don't you forgive your son? Why don't you bring him back? What a hypocrite. That's really what she's saying. For the king speaks as one who is guilty and that the king does not bring his banished one home again. For we shall surely die and become like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he, advises me, or he devises means excuse me, so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. Now, therefore, I have come to speak of this thing to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your, and your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, The word of my lord the king will now be comforting. For as the angel of God, and boy, you can, you just, she's just pouring it on. And David, I can imagine here, is just feeling, oh my goodness, I'm already feeling convicted. Now she's t- saying that I'm like the angel of God. <laughs> I mean, David, I mean, how, how much worse could it be? You know, he's already wallowing in his own pity, and now she's pouring this out. And he's just like, oh, good grief. Help, Lord. Yeah, that's a good prayer, by the way. Help, Lord. If you don't know that prayer, I would encourage you to learn it. Help, Lord, is a very good prayer. I say it often. Help, Lord. Nehemiah did that when he stood before Ahasuerus. Help, Lord. (laughs) Help, Lord. That's a great prayer. Simple to the point, and God knows what you need. Say it. I need it often. I'm always saying, help, Lord, with a capital H. So, Then the king answered and said to the woman, Please do not hide anything that I ask you. And the woman said, Please, let my Lord speak. Let my lord the king speak. And so the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? Ah, yes. And I love the integrity of this woman. She doesn't continue with her, she doesn't continue with her subterfuge. She, She owns it. She owns it. Listen to her, what she says. And he said, is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? And the woman answered and said, as you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that the lord the king has spoken. Again, buttering up again. For your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant to bring about this change of affairs. Your servant Joab has done these things. But my lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. And the king said to Joab, all right, this is his nephew, right? He's the commander of the army. He looks at Joab and he goes, all right, I have granted you this thing. Go, therefore, and bring the young man Absalom. 
And then Joab fell to the ground before the king on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and he made this journey again, at least an 80-mile journey north of the Galilee to the east. Joab arose and he went to Jeshur and he brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him return to his own house, but do not let me let him see my face. Very interesting. Yes, bring him back in proximity, but I don't want to see him. Is David really, think about how, how much David has been forgiven. Has David been forgiven much? And now he's holding this grudge against his own son who's only done half of what David has done. He's only committed murder. He hasn't done adultery that we know of yet. So Absalom returned to his own house, but he did not see the king's face. Now David loved Absalom, and it makes you wonder why he didn't want to see his face. Maybe perhaps out of justice. Maybe he felt shameful that he didn't do what he should have done to Amnon. Maybe Amnon would still be alive had David done the right thing as a parent to confront his son. Maybe he was feeling a little pensive because now his son is showing more leadership or at least more willingness to do what's supposed to be done rather than his father. And David now is wounded because of his own moral choices in his life, this is a very, this is a low ebb period for David. And, and by the way, he wrote some of the most beautiful psalms during this period that we all benefit from. Isn't that like a Romans 8.28 moment? All things work together for the good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Even in his misery and his sin, he wrote some of the psalms that we read that just melt our heart because we recognize, boy, am I in good company. I felt this way, and David, you felt the same way. And as I read your words, the Lord's ministering to me because I know you're in glory, and I, I want to be in glory too. And I know that God can forgive me just as he forgave you. Isn't that encouraging to know that God can forgive you as he forgave David? I would like to have a show of hands, but I won't do it, okay? But I would like to ask, has anybody actually murdered somebody, like physically murdered somebody? Yeah, only, only, only 12 people. Now, I say that because the people on the radio are going to be like, oh, 12 people murdered somebody. No, none of us raised our hand. And I won't ask for a show of hands. But how many of us committed physical adultery? Every one of us is guilty probably of the spiritual adultery with our eyes and our thoughts. But to physically go through the act like David did, how many of us? I mean, you know, and David did both of those things. And, and other things, deceit. But he crack like an egg, he turned from his sin, and he is a son of God. He is a son of God. God loves him. And guess what? He loves you too, in spite of anything that you've gone through. Is there anything too hard for the Lord to forgive? If he can forgive that, can he forgive even the serial killer on death row? He has, by the way. Can he forgive a hardened despot in the Middle East? Someone like Nebuchadnezzar, the one whom God, who was a pagan idolater, and God used him as his hammer against his own people. And then Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. 
Read Daniel chapter 4. Read his own testimony. He extols the God of heaven. And if there's anybody who doesn't serve him, you know, I mean, he made some pretty harsh things, but he was a believer in God, in the God of the Bible, in Jehovah, God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25, now in all that Israel, now in all Israel there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. This guy was a looker. All the ladies looked at him. Probably had a really fancy car. Probably made of Corinthian leather. Nice sleek black lines. I mean, that car was just automatic. It was systematic. Handsome guy. Reminds me of another young man who was handsome in Israel's history. Remember Saul, Israel's first king? Head and shoulders taller than anybody else. Beautiful to look at. Blonde you know, hair. I don't know if he had blonde hair, but Absalom did. Beautiful man. Handsome man. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. He was certainly not doing commercials for acne cream. This man had was gorgeous. <laughs> Verse 26, And when he cut the hair of his head, at the end of every year he cut it because it was heavy on him. And when he cut it, he weighed the hair of his own head, 200 shekels according to the king's standard. If that, if that number is correct, 200 shekels, that's about five pounds of hair. Okay? Some believe this may have been a, mis, um, a mistranslation because in Hebrew, I don't know if you know this, Numbers are easily confused because there can be a number and it depends on whether there's a dot. There's some little identifiers that make it either 20 or 200 or 2,000. And if you miss that mark when you're translating something, you can make a mistake on the number. But let's just say it was 20 instead of 200. That's still a, pound, a half a pound of hair. That's still a lot of hair. A half a pound of hair. But maybe five pounds. Maybe he looked, you know, had the hair going all the way down and he looked like a lion, you know. Five pounds of hair. To Absalom there were born three sons, one daughter whose name was Tamar. Notice he names his own daughter after his own sister. And notice what it says, and she was a woman of beautiful appearance. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. So if you do the math, how long has it been since he killed, Abs or killed um, Amnon? It's been five years. <laughs> and therefore Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent him again the second time, he would not come. And so he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he has a barley there, a barley field. Go and set it on fire. And so Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Again, just showing the cunning impetuousness of Absalom. And then Joab arose, got his attention, didn't it? It worked. So then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your, why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Look, I sent to you, saying, Come here, so that, I may send you to, that, so that I may send you to the king 
to say, why have I come from Jeshur? Why have I come from all that place? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. If there is iniquity in me, then let him execute me. And Absalom is guilty of murder. So basically he's saying, you know what, why do you bring me to Jerusalem and then I can't see his face? And he says, you might as well just make the, get a jury together and let's get on with this. Am I guilty? What, what's going to happen? Then, you know, let's just move on from here. And David, unfortunately, is not forgiving. He's kind of holding over whatever it is, holding something over on his son when, when he had been forgiven much. He's still kind of holding back. Now, granted, justice needed to be meted out. And, and how, you know, we know what the law says. But not, all, not every time that happened. So Joab went to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and he bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And then the king kissed him. And again, it's been five years. Five years. If you look at the 13th chapter that we just looked at in verse 38, and then look at chapter 14, verse 28, it tells you the full amount of years. Three plus two is five years. Since he killed Amnon, there was a total of five years. That's a long time, isn't it? And doesn't it seem true? Isn't it true sometimes that time heals wounds? Have you been wounded by somebody? Has something happened to you? And you find that as the years pass, your heart becomes a little warmer. It's not as cold maybe as it used to be. Maybe you've gotten over the heat of the passion, of the anger of it, and now you're in a place where you've accepted it. Now you, maybe you've even forgiven the person. You just haven't made contact with them, but you've cooled down. You've thought things through. Maybe even found a little bit of a guilt on your own side. And... And time does that, doesn't it? It's a, it's a wonderful thing, can be. It can take time for things to transpire before people can communicate again and do it in a meaningful way without anger and a loss of temper. So David, throughout chapter 14, was torn concerning Absalom. He's nearby now in Jerusalem, but he doesn't want to talk to him, doesn't want to see his face. He's not quite ready. He's not quite in that space where he's really forgiving. And yet, the Bible exhorts us to forgive, doesn't it? There's a lesson here for us as well. Forgive as we've been forgiven, right? Right? In Ephesians 4, verse 31, it says, Let all bitterness, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Let me ask you, is your heart in that place of forgiveness? For someone maybe long ago, maybe somebody today, maybe somebody last week, last month, last year, whatever it is, has harmed you, or maybe you harmed them. Are you willing to go and get it right with them? You know, there's nothing greater than to be reconciled with people. Isn't life too short to let things go like David did with Absalom? Isn't life too short? Why not just get it right? Why not confess to someone that you've hurt? 
And maybe the relationship can be restored. You know, that's happening in families. There are families in this church that are still angry about other family members, and it's been going on for years, and no one has had the guts to go up and say to that family member, you know what, I remember last, you know, 20 Christmases ago, remember that Christmas Eve? Remember what I said to you? You pushed my buttons and I let you have it. You remember that? And you never forgave me. And I'm here to tell you. And I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I tell you what, Christian. If you do that, even if you're the one who is in the wrong and you go to somebody, God is going to smile upon that. And do you know that How do you know that by doing that, you may win their heart to Christ? Because who does that? Seriously, who does that? A Christian can do that. A Christian ought to do that. Are we Christ ones or are we not? Why can't we? When I got saved, and I'm just going to share with you something that happened to me. I knew I had been forgiven much. (laughs) And after I got saved, I thought about everybody I hurt, everybody that I did something wrong toward, and I eventually I found every one of them, and I asked them to forgive me. And I would encourage you to do the same thing. I even stole some property from a university that I wrote them a note And I said, you know what? You have every right to prosecute me. I took this. I know I did it. Here's when I did it. And I will pay you back. Either cash or whatever you need to do. I'm glad to do it. And I gave my testimony how I came to Christ. Never heard a word from them. Now maybe they'll catch up. Maybe that letter will be found and they'll haul me off to jail. I don't know. But that was many, many years ago. But do that. Get it right. Life is too short. It's over. In a, in a, the Bible tells us that our life is like a vapor. Why do we wait around and expect that we have tomorrow? You may not have tomorrow. Get it right today. Get it right tonight. Call your mother. Call your father. Call your sister you haven't talked to in years. Call that aunt or that uncle that has hurt you and that you hurt them and, and, and get it right. And let there be tears. Maybe even let there be anger, but let there be a healing Would to God that this would have happened earlier in David's life. Perhaps Absalom and David would be in a much better place. We're almost finished. Just bear with me for a moment here. Jesus went to a man named Simon's house. He was a Pharisee. And and it's recorded for us in Luke chapter 7 that he turned, that there was a woman who was crying at Jesus' feet, and she had anointed his feet with with a a very precious ointment. Her tears were covering his feet, and she was wiping his feet with her hair. And Simon, this self-righteous Pharisee, looked at Jesus and was filled with indignation. And so Jesus turned to the woman, and he turned to the woman while he's speaking to Simon. I love this. Do you see this woman? I entered your house and and gave me and, and, and you gave me no water for my feet. These were just common things that they should have done for hospitality. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much." 
But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. (laughs) And I think of David, forgiven much, and how his heart now is still in struggling with this whole idea, but we need to forgive. We need to forgive. Jesus had this, and we'll end here. I think I'm done with the chapter, aren't I? Yes. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus had a very pointed message. And this really hurts. And it's something that I'm not going to try and negotiate away. Let's just take it for what it is and let it stew with you as it did with me. In Mark 11 verse 25, Jesus says, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. But if you do not forgive him, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. That's a hard word, isn't it? And I'm just going to leave it there. Because I want to encourage you, as much as this is about David forgiving Absalom and, and, and all the turmoil there, I want to encourage you to do the same. Let's be forgiving people. Anger is easy. It's just part of human nature. But forgiving somebody, if you forgive somebody, let me tell you something. You will change your life forever when you do that. When you take the step, when you have the boldness and the guts to go and to tell somebody that you've messed up, that you did something wrong. I tell you what, when you do that, they're going to have a whole level of respect for you like you've never seen before. Even if they're angry with you, they're going to respect you. And if you can live a life like that, believe me, people around you will change, and you will change, and you will feel like a lead weight has been lifted off of you when you do it. I promise you. So let's stand. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for um, the saints in the Bible. We think of David. And we thank you, Lord, in spite of all of his failings and, and sin, Lord, you loved him and he confessed those things and was a broken man. Never the same quite again, but much better because he was no longer hiding. Lord, help us to no longer hide from you. Lord, help us to not hide from you and help us to get things right with the people that we love, the people that are around us, family members, relatives, co-workers, old boyfriends, old girlfriends. Lord, any wrong that we've done, can you help us to set them free and to just own the things that we've done? According to your will and plan, Lord, we, we can't visit everybody, but Lord, for those that we can, should we? And can we, and will you work that out that we might be able to do that? So, Lord, we confess our hearts to you tonight. We thank you for your word, Lord, just for what a pure word it is, even though it challenges us to the core. How we love you, Lord Jesus, and how we thank you for tonight. And please comfort our hearts, Lord. Give us that heart of forgiveness. Give us that heart of compassion. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.